So do you ever think? Very funny, very funny. My job's easy tonight. Um, how strange it is to be here, doing what we're doing here. Uh, could you have ever thought, maybe when you were growing up in your Christian or Jewish family somewhere east? <laughs> I mean, east of here. That someday you would be sitting in a room with people doing a practice that was developed, that was discovered and developed 2,500 years ago with statues of these people in the back here. And uh, that you would be, you know, participating in this kind of ceremony, this kind of ritual practice. Uh, sometimes I just find it so strange that I'm here doing what I'm doing and uh, think back of my history and, and realize how if I'd have been born 30 years earlier, I probably never would have heard of the Buddha or, you know, I probably very likely would not have started practicing the Dharma. And how much of our lives are shaped and uh, uh, defined by the moment, the cultural moment that we live in. I also find it, almost every time I sit down to meditate and take my awareness insi inside my, myself, I'm always amazed that, that I'm not aware most of the time of how my mind is working and how my decisions are made and that usually I am not present. And I'm admitting that to you now. It's, you know, it's, I'm supposed to be the great wise one. And, but uh, there was a big Harvard study that I read about. Lots, they interviewed a lot of people and had a, had a huge study on a wandering mind and they found that people's minds wander in general about 50% of the time, no matter what activity they're doing. And that people report being less happy when they are, their mind is wandering than they are when they're engaged, when the mind is engaged or not, not wandering. Through all, uh, no matter what the activity, except for one activity. Everybody's present for that. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human condition that, that we're witnessing. I say that in, in the hope that you take as a rule of your practice to forgive yourself over and over again. That we all get a particular nervous system, a particular brain uh, developed over millions and millions of years uh, in evolution, and it's just not perfect, you know? It just doesn't obey or do necessarily what will lead us to, to happiness. And that's, that's part of the exciting thing about what we're doing. Part of the excitement and the kind of adventure of trying to overcome the instincts, the sort of uh, the programming that rules us to see if we can't find some freedom from it. I'm talking about our biological programming as mammals and our psychological pro uh, programming as, you know, humans and through the, our history we develop certain traits. And it's a great adventure. It's a great adventure and we really we're really in dire need of it. So I want to do something a little different tonight. I know you all want me to tell jokes and stuff, but uh, I want to start with this Mary Oliver poem. It's a great summer poem. It's 
called a settlement. Look, it's summer, and last year's loose dust has turned into this soft willingness. The windflowers have come up trembling. Slowly the bracken are uplifting their curvaceous and pale bodies. The thrushes have come home, filled with mystery, sorrow, happiness, music, ambition. And I am walking out into all of this with nowhere to go, no task undertaken but to turn the pages of this beautiful world over and over in the world of my mind. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. What if you could just wipe away all of your regret? All of your wishing for something different. All of your feelings that you've made mis these big mistakes and you're doing it wrong and that you're not good enough. And Wouldn't that just be so sweet and change your life? Great Japanese poem, poet uh, Ikkyu he ends one of his poems. I'd like to help you. What, what, what can I do? How many times do I have to say it? There is no way not to be who you are and where. There is no way not to be who you are and where. The Tibetans have a great saying, roll, roll all blames into one. Blame evolution for yourself. <laughs> Some scientist I read said, I wish evolution worked faster. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dalai Lama turned 80 a couple weeks ago, and uh, here's a couple things he said. He's such a clown. He's such a jokester. He said, if you think... You are too small to make a difference. Try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. <laughs> he also said, know the rules well so you can break them effectively. And compassion is the radicalism of our time. With the Dalai Lama and Pope Francis on the earth, we still have hope. A few years ago when the tension between Israel and Iran was very high and it seemed like war might be imminent, this Israeli graphic designer, Ron Edry, shared a poster on Facebook of himself and his daughter with a message, Iranians, we love you. And his daughter was waving an Israeli flag. And other Israelis created their own posters with the same message. And then Iranians started doing it back. Iran loves Israel, and, and even Palestine loves Israel. And once it got started, the sites were being visited by 2 million people a week. little things. So, um, Oriol who works with newborns at a hospital in Barcelona, says that the first human gesture is the embrace. After coming into the world at the beginning of their days, babies wave their arms as if seeking someone. Other doctors who work with people who have already lived their lives say that the aged, the aged at the end of their days die trying to raise their arms. And that's it. That's all. No matter how hard we strive or how many words we pile on, everything comes down to this. Between two flutterings, 
with no more explanation, the voyage occurs. That's a piece from a book by Eduardo Galeano. If you've never seen Eduardo Galeano or read a book by Eduardo Galeano, I highly recommend it. He writes these paragraphs, beautiful. So um, I want to share a few things with you. I'm, I guess I'm doing that, aren't I? And uh, um, then maybe we'll have some discussion later. I'm currently working on a, a book, uh, compiling actually an anthology of a bunch of my writing, and both for the radio and for the Inquiring Mind articles, and then some excerpts from previous books. It will appear next spring if all goes well. Anyway, I found this piece that I wrote for the radio, and it was also I also presented it at. Uh, a reunion last summer of the staff of KSAN radio. Some of you who know, I can hear you murmuring, because it was it was the great counterculture radio station in uh, in, in the Bay Area and all over the country. Anyway, and this is about the summer of love, and I thought I'll read this to you. I usually had music playing in the background, but I don't, not tonight. I'll just, something like that. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, lovers and friends, are you hip yet? Can you dig it? If not, just put some flowers in your hair and some flowers in your pipe. And suddenly we are in San Francisco during one of those dreamy summers of love, 1967 or 68. And you've started the day with a toke or two, and now you're headed toward the park to see what's happening. And you're grooving on the scene when suddenly a Volkswagen full of laughing hippies drives by with Sergeant Pepper blasting away on the radio. Suddenly you can't decide whether to spend the day trying to save the world or just savor the world. And you have another toke. <laughs> and this is Scoop trying to remember what it was like almost 50 years ago when the world was young. And our magical mystery tour begins a few decades before the summer of love, just after World War II, when America became a superpower, taking over the former European colonies with television and Coca-Cola and dreams too rich to ever be fulfilled. It was an America where the cars had started to grow fins, and the terrorists were called communists, and the American dream was just starting to put everyone to sleep. And in the heart of the new empire, a bunch of young rogues and visionaries began to articulate a different sensibility, a counterculture, a movement that drew on the ideas of European Dada and existentialism, a movement that turned to the East, to the Tao, to the Buddha, to the Jai Jai Ram, a movement that was fueled by the drumbeats of essential Africa and found its American voice in the musical forms of jazz and rock and roll and in the writings of the beatniks. It was the gang of Jack Kerouac burst upon the scene, mad to live and dig every note in the great riff of life, driven along the road by the crazy looping solos of Charlie Parker. And for anyone like myself who had always felt like an outsider in America, it was a thrill to read Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, written way back in 1955, in which he denounces the god of war and commerce that had already begun to take over the soul of the nation. He named that god Moloch. Moloch the loveless, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies. But the beatniks were really romantics and mystics at heart. As Ginsberg said, they were beatifically beat, searching for what Kerouac called the golden eternity. And in their travels, they saw the light come shining down from the east in the eyes of the Buddha. And soon they started introducing strange new words into the hipster's lexicon. Words like karma and dharma and mantra and tantra. And it all sounded so exotic. I finally decided to come to San Francisco to become a beatnik. It was 1967. Too late to make the scene, man. <laughs> so they assigned me to the hippies instead. And I'm proud to say I was a hippie. 
Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? The hippies were idealistic, optimistic flower children. Flower children. We dragged Bohemia out of the dark bars and coffee houses for a few brief years of colorful frolicking in the sun, celebrating the age of Aquarius, always accompanied by the ecstatic wail of electric guitars. And I was one of those flower children, walking around in tie-dye, sporting a wild-looking Jufro. <laughs> and I was one of those who spent a lot of my time in the late 60s experimenting with consciousness. Yes, by ingesting illegal substances. And also through meditation and yoga and the new psychologies of gestalt and breathwork. I was part of that grand conspiracy of young people who at least for a few years refused to join the straights, as we called them, in the consumer economy known to us as the system. We rejected the old world mentality of our parents with their Depression-era fears of scarcity and war and their uptight Puritan morality. Instead, we sought a new consciousness, one that could celebrate life and sexuality and tune into nature and embrace all the world as one. Okay, so maybe we were a little naive. Or maybe we just had it too good. As the psychologist Paul Goodman wrote in his famous book, Growing Up Absurd, quote, it was destined that the children of affluence who grew up without toilet training would turn out to be daring, disobedient, and simple-minded. <laughs> so maybe that's why we started chanting, we want the world and we want it now. We were poorly potty trained, prone to, prone to tantrums. But we were trying to create a better world and also trying to stop our government from conducting a criminal horrific war. And we held some great protests, like the 1967 March on Washington when we caused the Pentagon to levitate. That's right, we surrounded the building, chanted OM, and up it went. <laughs> on that day we were super hippies. But at heart, the hippies weren't very political. We had no five-year plan or analysis. Instead, our revolution was expressed in gatherings known as be-ins, communal celebrations of just being. Here's the San Francisco Oracle, a Haight-Ashbury journal back in 1967, announcing that the first human be-in would take place in Golden Gate Park. Quote, the spiritual revolution will be manifest and proven. We will shower the nation with waves of ecstasy and purification. Fear will be washed away. Ignorance exposed to sunlight. Prophets and empire will lie drying on deserted beaches. The spiritual revolution will be manifest and proven. That's what it was. It was a spiritual re revolution. And if the hippies have a legacy... It's now in the yoga and meditation centers existing in every town in America. It's also in the modern environmental movement that got its start in the late 60s with back-to-the-land visions of ecotopia, plus a whole earth catalog of appropriate technologies now becoming necessary for our survival. And the hippies were right, and they are still right on. It's time to scale down and simplify. It's time to recreate community and celebrate existence and make a whole new world, remember, full of peace, love, and good vibes. So in honor of the hippie legacy, I propose that somewhere, maybe on the mall in Washington, D.C., there should be a, a statue erected to the unknown hippie. <laughs> People could visit, leave old buttons, beads, flowers. And however you feel about the hippies today, you've got to admit we sure could use a summer of love in America and in San Francisco right now. So go ahead, turn off that isolating computer with its big brother brain keeping you hyper busy and distracted. Just go out into the streets and start talking to people about life or how to end all the disgusting wars or else just go to the park and sit down and feel the earth like the hippies used to do and then vow to do everything you can to see that our little biosphere project continues, this awesome experiment in life and consciousness. And then, brothers and sisters, even if it's just for a few hours, banish your sorrow over what's happening to the world. Let go of the fear and the greed and have yourself a be-in. Celebrate life and the mystery of it all. Celebrate 
another summer of love. So, a little peon to the hippies, but partly, and partly I thought it would be interesting to read that considering, you know, the strangeness of what we're doing here and sort of my ancestry, my uh, lineage that came through going to college and studying the existentialists and their emphasis on just being and uh, the universe being kind of absurd. At least we, we, we can't understand it. We aren't smart enough. The existentialists flowing into the American form of the beatniks and the romantic poets of the, of the beat generation and then into the hippies and, and uh, how we really seeded, uh, how what we're doing here got seeded, you know, in the, in the history, uh, the cultural history of our nation, of our civilization. And also, I like reading it. That's why I read it to you. <laughs> Actually, on Wednesday night, I'm going to read it again at a reunion of people who were associated with the Berkeley Barb, which was one of the first underground newspapers uh, in the country. So, um, moving right along. I took a vow a while ago to as much as possible whenever I was speaking in public to somehow bring up the subject of endangered species. Because as you probably know, most of the world's leading biologists say we are currently in the fifth or sixth largest extinction spasm, that's what they call it, in biological history, uh, losing species to extinction at something like 1,000 to 10,000 times the standard rate. And the tragic results can be seen on the endangered species lists, which I thought maybe in the future, future could be used as documents to bring us all to trial for crimes against non-humanity. Um, all of our favorite animals are on the lists. All the stars of the TV nature shows are on the lists. We lose about three an hour in the time that we were here. Three, six species will disappear and there will never be uh, another like them with exactly their same characteristics. The statistics really don't come alive until you hear the names. Or they become more alive when you hear the names. And if you can see their pictures, you also. In fact, I, that was one idea I had was every time a, another species makes the list, you put its picture on a milk carton, like missing child. And the list should be read in churches and schools, you know, constantly updated. So here's a few. Endangered. <clears throat> Sierra Nevada red fox. San Joaquin kit fox. The last supper for these foxes might be a Pacific pocket mouse, a riparian brush rabbit, or a Fresno, Fresno kangaroo rat, all endangered. Then there are the big ones, the California bighorn sheep, the stellar sea lion, the sperm whale, the right whale. Humpback and blue whales, all on the endangered lists. Let us now praise famous birds, the California condor, the greater sandhill crane, the bald eagle, the great gray owl, the mar marbled marillette, the common bank swallow. And what about the plant kingdom, filled with beings whose very names evoke tastes and smells and beautiful sights. Mount Gleason paintbrush, succulent owl's clover, mariposa lily, crystal springs fountain thistle, Owens Valley checker bloom, 
slender or cut grass, all are listed as endangered. In fact, 70% of plants are listed as endangered. So how could this be happening? Is this what nature wants? And why are we chosen as the executors of this plan, the agents of this holocaust? Is it retribution for our, our basic arrogance as a species? I think there's not the kind of evil that it would take. I think it's ignorance. It's ignorance at the, at the base of it. It's strange that we've spent most of our history as humans trying to protect ourselves from nature. That's been, you know, let's build houses and walls and, and grow, grow our food in little contained patches so that, you know, we can keep the bugs out and the rodents out. And, the and now we're being called on to protect nature from us. But of course, we are nature. And that's the shift of consciousness that we need if we are going to help heal the life of this planet. We need to start telling ourselves this new story that we are part of the ever-evolving, ever-changing flow of life on this planet. That our species is not the penultimate and probably will become extinct someday. And uh, if we really want, if we really take our bodhisattva vows seriously, we will all do something. Maybe pick a species and find out who's, what organization is supporting it or where, where it grows or where it lives and what its name is. What it, take one under, under your wing, your arm which, by the way, is structured with the same bone configuration as a wing or a fin. Boy, talk about relations. All my relations. Each of us starts life as a single cell. You see, the story of evolution is our collective autobiography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the cell is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, and then into a tubular worm-like body. The em embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians, as we cycle through the DNA of our ancestors. And even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. And it all happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. So, I think that uh, if we make a point of it, we, we can start to see and feel ourselves. I think meditation, and through meditation, we can start to really feel ourselves as part of the life of the planet. As we breathe, as we pay attention to our breath, just an occasional reflection that with every breath we are feeding the plant kingdom and being fed by the plant kingdom, we are exchanging nutrients, that we are part of the whole breathing of this single being that's called Gaia sometimes, by, even by scientists. Uh, we're part of the same organism. And, you know, as we feel these emotions coursing through us, we, we can connect with all the other humans that have these same, these same feelings, that that's part of what it is to be human, have a limbic system. And there are so many ways that we can use meditation as a way to feel ourselves into this story of evolution. That's my passion, is to try to find a way to to start telling that story to ourselves about that's our identity. First and foremost, a live being. Secondly, a mammal with all the constraints and freedoms a mammal has. And then the rest of it, you know, biped, wow.
vertebrate. So, to honor those who made our life possible, I suggest we go back to some form of ancestor worship. And the story of evolution provides us with trillions of opportunities. And I don't mean just keeping a daguerreotype of grandpa on the mantle. I'm talking about deep ancestor worship, which requires that we dig into our evolutionary past and evoke the spirit of those who made, us, made it possible for us to become the brilliantly befuddled humans we are today. So we start to tell stories about our ancestors. Now our ancestors, we think Adam and Eve, yeah? No. Eons and eons before Adam and Eve, and a few months, way, way, way earlier, the first life appeared. We begin our ancestor worship by giving this original single-celled being a name. How about Una? How about Uno? Una. No, let's make her human. I mean female. According to biologists, Una came on the scene some 3.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> Could be that today is the birthday of all of us. So uh, imagine Una floating around on the ancient seas, as happy as anyone could be at the time. For one thing, there was no one around to want to eat her. And furthermore, she had all the food to herself. As you might imagine, Una eventually became lonely and sad, being unable to share this strange and beautiful existence in which she found herself. Hey, look at that gorgeous sunset, somebody. Please. After a few million years of isolation, Una finally came upon a solution. She decided she had so much pulsing plasma inside of her, she could share a little with someone else. So she took the little packet of chemicals and minerals inside her body, stretched and pushed them out from the spiraling DNA core of her being, and after a few million years with a final spasm of energy, wham, Una split in two. The story of evolution had begun. At last, Una had someone to share the world with, and she started having twice as much fun. What really happened was that Una had found someone to love, and the being she fell in love with was actually part of herself. You might say that Una number one fell in love with Una number two, hereafter known as Dose. <laughs> there are those who might consider this a story of extreme narcissism, but there's a profound spiritual message here telling us to consider all other living beings as part of ourself, which is the true truth of the matter. We have good reason to love all beings as ourselves. So perhaps we should make a grand statue of Una. Is there a theme here? I'm always trying to get new statues erected. Uh, so perhaps we should make a grand statue of Una, the first living being, and place a replica in all the major plazas and malls of the world. Every being on earth can trace their ancestry back to Una the tiny, single-celled mother of us all. We are nature. Well, maybe I'll uh, just say, or ask if you have any additions, corrections. Hold up your hand. You're looking at stardust made flesh, the iron in your blood, the calcium in your bones, the oxygen that fills your lungs each time you take a breath. All of them come from being baked in the fiery ovens within stars and then blown into space when those stars grew old and perished. Every one of us is quite literally made in heaven. We are stardust. We are golden. <laughs> No, that's all right. So, the floor is open in case you have a comment or, yes. Well, I grew up partly in the country. Hello, can everybody hear me now? Uh, I grew up partly in the country, and I think that, and also when I was much younger, I, my parents let us run free 
And uh, I don't know if it's because they had an appreciation of nature, but we developed it in my family. And it was always the first word was respect for things, and especially also the beauty of everything, including the mudflats in Benicia. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've thought a lot about this, and I think, first of all, I'm aware of nature, and I think sometimes people are not aware of nature because they've never lived in it. They don't know what it feels like. They might have taken a walk in the park or something, but a lot of times I think people just don't know that it exists and they don't understand that we are mm. a part of it and mm-hmm. we're, like you said, the same. We're not, we're, we de- we're interdependent. Yeah, we have autism, we have autism in nature, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, so I've thought a lot about what I can do in our world and I think that um, my, usually my reaction to the things that are going on is to turn the lights off use half the water um, to remember what I'm using and uh, if I have a piece of furniture it came from a tree I try to remember that to look at to realize that's a tree to look at the tree that I love the trees and that that's where that comes from because I think when you do that your conscience kicks in thank you thank you thank you for adding that yeah. I, and it also reminds me that uh, if you want to cut down your consumption, the scientists say we, if, if everyone lived at, this, at the level of consumption that we live here in North America, here in the overdeveloped world, uh, we would need five planets. And uh, so, you know, that's the best thing we could possibly do for for. The planet, but it isn't going to happen. You know, people aren't going to give up their consumption very easily unless we have, I don't know, some great inspiration, some great, somebody who can really infuse us with uh, the importance of, of changing our, our habits. Somebody said, if only CO2 was pink, if we could see it, we might then, the, the, the reaction of, of the brain, you know, the fight or flight reaction might be triggered. We would see, oh my God, we've got we've to do something about this. But we can't see it. It's, it's the same way with climate change and global warming. It's, it's, it's hard to make it real. You can't, the wolf is not howling right outside the door. It's slowly coming. Others, please, other people. I'm wondering how you personally deal with the pain that I assume you must feel looking at how the species are becoming extinct and how we're marching toward our own extinction and that of the world. Well, it's, it's sort of like practicing for your own death which I, I do and reflect on quite frequently in, in meditation and at the end of the exhale sort of sense that I, there may not be another inhale uh, reflecting on that um, and then realizing that the life of this planet goes through these phases and that there's no one to blame it is just what happens when, a, uh, as Lynn Margulis, great uh, molecular biologist, says, every successful species eventually dies out because it consumes everything that it, you know, that it relied on for its for its life. We're so human centric. We're so focused on how. You know, our creation myth, our, you know, all of our old stories say, this was all made for us, you know? Now, we have to say, this was all made for us, including the billions of galaxies out there. You know, it used to be that you could believe that it was all made for us, because we thought, you know, 
the earth went, the sun went around the earth. But so and we're in the process of sort of dehuman, not unhumanizing, but dehumanizing. No, not dehumanizing, unhumanizing our views a bit. That we are, yes, we're, we're wonderful, and we're unique, and we're valuable, and we're, we, we give names to things, and we, we can understand how things work in nature. We're brilliant, we're a brilliant species. And, uh, but it doesn't mean that we're here forever. Um, so having that big perspective is really, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Uh, you're all going to die. Others behind Do you want me to stand up or can I just sit here? It's okay. You can sit there. Okay. Just a comment about the condor. Um, of course everyone knows that this is the largest bird living, existed, has a wingspan of about nine feet. And I was recently in the Grand Canyon and to find out back in the eighties we were down to twenty two condors worldwide. That's how low the number had gotten. And since then, there's been a very active group that has been nurturing this bird, you know, bringing it back into the wild. And they have actually little radio chips in the, they've put in the, on the birds before they go out so they know where they go and they're, they're tracking them and they're trying to make sure that they're actually trying to teach them to stay away from humans. <laughs> Literally that'll, training them. Stay preserve them. They're, they're like, yeah. Stay away from humans. But I think the number is now up to something like sixty. But but I think that you, as you mentioned, Wes, it's it's going to be education. It's ignorance. Maybe you have a a classroom adopt a, a particular insect, a little tiny insect, and they bring their awareness up. But I had no idea we were losing three species an hour. I mean, that's just shocking. There right. are a lot of species out there. <laughs> I mean, there you know, well. there are many that you would never know were there in the first place. And anyway, that's that's my comment. Anyone thank else? you, thank you for that. You're yes, welcome. because we we have to remember the the hopeful the hopeful stories. Um, I just wanted to share that this topic, um, a resource that's been really wonderfully helpful for me is Joanna Macy's work. Um, she's, I think, spoken here probably. Yes. Um, yeah, if people aren't familiar, I encourage you to, yeah, read her books and particularly her her most recent books talk about how to deal with your grief around what's happening in our in our natural world. Um, yeah, and, and uh, just another plug for consumerism. I really, as a younger person, really do so much uh, thinking to just all the small, incredible details <laughs> that make up how you can contribute to not add to waste. Um, I mean, like a really poignant and simple example is to just bring your own mug if you want tea here. Um, yeah, that just always strikes me that we, you know, have paper, paper everything. I mean, disposable. It's it's all over our culture and just yeah, that one act in mm -hmm, a in a mm -hmm. daily way can just make so much difference. And yeah, I know that I I really struggle and work at the same time to do that. And so, yeah, I, I've, that's been one of the easiest and truest practices that I can bring to mm -hmm. my life and hope mm -hmm. that others, you know, are inspired to do as well. 
So. Beautiful. Thank you very much yeah. for that. Reminds me of uh, what Gary Snyder said that, you know, uh, if we think we're going to go out and save the, the world, save the planet, it's the same kind of arrogance that we've always held, uh, that we should be doing our, our ecological work and behaviors to save our own souls, to, as a, just a, 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 as a matter of etiquette, as being co coexisting with all these other beings uh, here on the planet, and not about some grandiose, uh, you know, ending or outcome, which is probably beyond our grasp. Yes. Yes. And a participant in life as a steward of one's own journey. And yes. I think that we all live in an ignorance because we don't know what we don't know. And part of becoming into a mindful practice is to know that everything we do is a choice. And how do we make a choice to be who we want to be in the world? Right. And we need to know. We need that's, to, that's, that's why. The, that's why. That's the mindful practice. Right. That's why I want to talk about endangered species whenever I, whenever I speak in public. It's a, it can be a bit of a downer, but uh, the truth, you know, I mean, it's the first noble truth. Incarnation is a, a state of dissatisfaction. We got to keep eating, we have to keep working, we have to keep, you know, we have to fight gravity with every step we take. <laughs> really. Every time you get out of bed in the morning, your gravity is pulling you back down, you know. You get hungry three times a day, four times a day. Your body does not listen to you. It get you know, especially when you get older, boy. <laughs> I won't go into the details. <laughs> but it's a, yeah. It's, and what we're doing, I, I think, is so central to what we've discovered that, and, and it's what a lot of us talked about in, in the hippie beatnik days was how a shift of consciousness had to go along with any kind of revolutionary change, that we really had to learn how to deal with our own aggression, our own fear, uh, and, and that, was, that was part of what was, would make the change come about. Well, let me close with a poem. I can find it. I think it escaped. Well, here's Charlie Darwin. Not exactly not exactly a poet, but this is a here's a couple quotes that I think are apropos to what we're talking about. This is Joseph Campbell. The old gods are dead or dying, and people everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be? The mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. D.H. Lawrence says, we have little needs and deeper needs, and we've fallen into the mistake of living from our little needs until we've lost our deeper needs in a sort of madness. Let's prepare for the death of our little life and reemerge in a bigger life in touch with the moving cosmos. And this is Charlie. There is, this is the last paragraph of 
the origin of species. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life, with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms, and that while this our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws, and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other, from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. The process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes. That's, that's always so amazing to me and stunning to realize that you go back, say, a couple hundred great-grandfathers, and you'd, you'd see a picture if you had a, had a photograph of someone who looked strangely, you know, human, but, you know, a little maybe different-shaped skull. You go back a million great-grandfathers, and you'd have a picture of a fish <laughs> in your lineage. It's amazing to think about, and that over the years, little teeny changes brought on by the demands of nature, you know, continents bumping into each other and comets crashing into the earth and floods and ice ages, and that all these different forms just changed little by little by little, and all of the beings that we've ever encountered and that we know of all came from this process. It's just... Uh, it's a, just a brilliant conception. And we live in an amazing, amazing world. So let's sit for a minute before we, we leave. Endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. Thank you all for coming. Have a wonderful rest of your life. <laughs> Until our paths cross again. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.